Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Welcome to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's episode is very powerful. Our guest is Amberly Lago. Now, Amberly had a perfect life. A dancer moved from Dallas over to LA, was in commercials, very successful as a fitness trainer, all the things going well in her life. And then a significant incident occurred in a heartbeat that changed her whole life. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that was, but it was significant that resulted in her basically not being able to function for almost two years. So, listen to the show. You'll be encouraged by Amberly. Her new book is True Grit in Grace. You can get that on Amazon. And my encouragement is, as you listen to the show, and she talks about it later on, is that if we're going to have grit, then we really need to know our purpose. We need to be clear about who we are. So we have our book, The Quest for Purpose. You can go to thequestforpurpose.ca. One of our assessments, you can do the values assessments, get clear about what you really, really value, what your personal style or personality is, the personal style indicator. All of these contribute to personal clarity. And that is what gets us through in life because we all will have situations and events Maybe not as dramatic and traumatic as Amberly, but we're going to have them, myself included. So what is going to get you through to the other side? So enjoy the show, and thank you for listening. Please share, uh, put comments, um, positive reviews and comments in whatever platform that you're listening to is very, very much appreciated as we build this process to encourage others to live, lead, and work on purpose. Here's our show today. Welcome to Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, each week we want to have an inspiring story, not always a guest, but in this case we do have a guest today. And I really want you to hear and listen to her journey. She's written a new book, True Grit in Grace. Her name is Amberly Lago. I got it right, right, Amberly? You got it right. <laughs> okay. So welcome to SOS, uh, Amberly, and to the SOS listener in our tribe. Oh, thanks. I love being a part of your tribe. I'm grateful to be here. Well, we have the pleasure of having you, and you have quite a journey, quite a story that's going to encourage uh, and inspire others here. But before we get into your new book and this journey that you went through, we won't disclose exactly what happened to you quite yet. But uh, where, where did you grow up? We'd like our listeners to get a sense of sort of your background um, before we get into your expertise and your story and your encouragement to others. Mm, I grew up in a small town and uh, right about an hour outside of Dallas, Texas. And, um, you know, my, well, I guess it was small. My, my grandmother's town, there's 742 people who live in her town. So I guess, you know, Greenville 
is a little bigger. It was a big deal when we finally got a McDonald's. That was like, wow, we're living wow. large now. We have a McDonald's. But, yeah, I grew up in a small town, but I moved out to California when I was 18. I packed up my things. I had worked, you know, a job being a lifeguard and teaching dance and babysitting and cleaning houses and whatever I could do to save up enough money to save up and move to California to pursue my dreams. And what were those dreams? What motivated you to go to California? Oh, you know, growing up, I was a dancer. I started dancing when I was three, and I was an athlete, and I ran track. And we had these conventions that would come to Dallas. We had, it was called Tremaine Dance Center, and they would come, and it was all these top choreographers from Los Angeles, and they would come to Dallas, and it was like an honor to go to these conventions, and we would take classes and we would compete and um, they would talk to us about how you could, you know, earn money as a dancer. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to move to L.A. and earn money doing what I love. And so that's what really inspired me to go to California, like a lot of people, you know, um, who move out here. And I saw that, you know, back in the day when I was growing up, MTV was the big thing and the music videos and mm -hmm. you saw the dancers and the videos. So that's what I wanted to do. And against, you know, like my parents weren't too excited about that. But and they said, well, why are you packing up everything? You're going to be back in a couple of weeks. And a month later, my big, like, claim to fame was I was on an MC Hammer music video. <laughs> I was, like, the token white girl dancing on there. And in my small town, I was, like, famous in that small town because I was with MC Hammer. But, you know, out in L.A., I suddenly was was, you know, the the small fish in the, the pond because there were so many talented dancers. I got on scholarship at the dance center out here in L.A., and I still to this day think, well, I think they just felt sorry for me and said, let's help this girl. She needs a lot of help. But they wow. took me under their wing, and it was, mm. you know, it was really amazing. So how did you muster up the courage, small-town USA, close to Dallas, to come all the way out to California. Not everybody would have had the courage to do that. Oh, you know, I think, well, I think sometimes uh, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I didn't know just exactly what I was getting into. I remember when I first got to L.A., I stayed in this little hotel in Van Nuys, and I had this little Suzuki Samurai with a soft, top it was a convertible and the next day I woke up and I was like something different about my car and the top had been stolen off of it and it was like welcome to LA you know I wasn't in the best wow. area um, but I you know I let my passion be bigger than my fear I knew what I wanted and I let you know I was so passionate about dancing that I just let that be bigger than my fear and I just one step at a time did what I had to do. You know, I, I, I took classes every single day. When I first moved out, I knew um, that I had to earn my keep. And so I, I was working four jobs. I auditioned for a, a position at a dance studio and I worked at two different dance studios and I worked at two different restaurants, waiting tables. And so, um, you know, I just did what I had to do to survive, wow. really, in L.A., because it's hard when you're coming from a small town. And 
Um, you know, luckily I had a cousin that lived in the Bay Area and I rented a small basement from them at first. And then when I saved up more money, I was able to get my own apartment. And um, it was, I, I don't, I have no regrets because it was just such, a, such an experience of a lifetime to get to come out, being from that small town mm. and coming to this big city and meeting all these new people. It was a culture shock, really. Mm. Oh, for sure. So what sustained you? Did you have any days where you were kind of down when you first got here and you were doing, you know, working two, three, four jobs? And we've heard these stories of many famous artists, actors. That's what they did before they got their big break. So how did you sustain yourself even though you did you go through these? Maybe you didn't. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, um, I think one of the hardest things about being an artist, whether you're a musician or dancer or singer, you know, what, whatever you're doing as an artist, you are putting yourself out there. And you, it's, I felt very vulnerable because um, you are constantly subjected to people telling you that you're not good enough or you're, you don't fit that part or, um you know, there'd be sometimes I would go to an audition and they would just line you up and say, uh, no, you're too fat. No, you're too short. No, you're too tall. No, you're, you know. And so uh, with every no, it just I just told myself, well, with every no, I'm that much closer to getting to the yes. Mm. And um, I just worked. I was so persistent. Um, and you know, I was not the best dancer and I was not the best looking. Um, but you know what? I think that sometimes, um, the passion that I had for it was recognized. And I think sometimes just when I remember there was one time I was going for this audition and I had been in Japan doing this job and I learned as much Japanese as I could. And I went in and they're all sitting there, and I walk in, and I say, Konnichiwa, um, and I start trying to speak Japanese with a southern accent, and they were like, you're hired, because, you know, they could tell I was just a friendly person, and I really wanted that job, and so I got booked for that commercial, so I think a lot of it is your persistence, but it's also your attitude, mm. and man, I've, I've always had a an attitude of gratitude and I've always been so grateful for every job that, that I've had and the opportunities that I've had. And I remember the day that I was called to get to go to Japan for this dance tour. And I ended up going to Japan six times calling my mom, you know, here I was at this time I was 19 years old. And I said, mom, I get to go to Japan and dance. And my poor mother, don't you know, she was just like, oh, my goodness, I hope that she's going to be safe. Because <laughs> I mm. went from a small town to all of a sudden dancing in Japan. But, you know, it, it was hard. The rejection was hard. But the, the yeses and the opportunities that I had, they were just amazing. And I let that outweigh the no's, those little mm. ones, you know. Now, did you meet, and I'm sure you did, um, other people whose attitude wasn't quite as positive as yours? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think dancers can tend to be a little bit catty. And I think anywhere or any profession, you're going to run across people that, that don't have such a great attitude. And I think it's so important to try to find those people that 
or positive. I say, you know, stick with the puppy uppers and not the doggy downers because they will bring you down. Um, well, there's you know, another southern statement for every, all the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. You know, i got to stick with those puppy uppers because, you know, uh, I've, I've realized more than ever, you we need people around us that are going to lift us up and support us and also level up, you know, keep us leveled up and, you know, also call us on our stuff and um, be honest with us. But, mm. you know, I think it's so important to have a support system, whether that is your family. You know, I was out here, didn't have family around me. So I found some friends that we were, I, you know, like, a tribe of friends that we would support one another because it's so important. Mm. Well, having staying away from the people that are toxic is important, isn't it? Oh gosh. You know, when you feel, I really think people's energy speaks before they do when they enter the room. And mm. I've been around that, especially after um, my accident and in recovery. And when I got back to working with people and I had some people that were just really, <clears throat> I call them like energy suckers. And they were just like, they can suck the life out of you. So I think it's really important to pay attention to how you feel after you've spent time with somebody. Do you feel mm. uplifted or do you feel drained? And it's important to kind of go through and um, eliminate, you know, limit your time to those people um, that drain you. Well, for sure. And, and we've talked about this on the show before on how important it is that you have the right people around you and how quickly toxic people can drain you in that we do have a choice to hang around them or not. What do you think were the factors that allowed you to be one of these positive people? Because these other ones, they were toxic, but how did you come out of the shoot where you were being positive and others were not? Um, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with the way that I was brought up. You know, we didn't, I didn't come from, you know, I came from a middle class family. My parents were divorced. My mom remarried an awful, awful man who ended up being very toxic and abusive. Mm -hmm. And my go-to, I had an outlet, which was dance and track. And I had great support systems in my life. My dance teacher was a role model for me and my track coach was a role model for me. And my mom is very positive too. And I, and I also too, from a young age, I have always been very spiritually connected. So no matter what, um, you know, there've been times when the, the light inside me, when I've gone through some, some pretty awful things and that light inside me was dim but I have always had a connection with my higher power who, you know, I call God. So I don't feel like I've ever walked alone on mm. any journey. I feel like I've always had a support system. Um, because I think no matter what, you know, it, it is a, a mind, body, spirit experience. And we have to make sure that we are resilient in all those areas. But um, I think my upbringing and having such great mentors really helped me be positive. Um, well, and so you were blessed with that, fortunate with that, but it's also important for listeners here that if you are a coach, if you are somebody who is a dance instructor, 
that you are leaving an impression. You're leaving an impact. And so you were impacted by these other people around you, even though your stepdad was not the person that you would like him to be. You found other outlets where you were able to kind of mitigate that toxic side. So let's skip ahead, Amberly. You are being successful. What are you doing there in 2000? What's happening with your career as you, when did you get married? Well, um, you know, I always knew as a dancer that I wanted to retire at a young age. Um, and so I retired from dancing mostly, for the most part, at like 25. But I wanted to do something that I could still um, teach. And I love being with people. And I love, you know, seeing people reach their goals. And I thought, well, what can I do? You know, I had a knee injury and I was supposed to have surgery as a dancer. I was like, you know, oh, my God, I blew my knee out. And I was supposed to have surgery. I was in a lot of fear that my career would be ended, so I started going to the gym more, and I repaired my leg, started working out, repaired my leg to the, the point where I didn't even need surgery, and I thought, mm. well, if I can do this and I can help myself, then I can help other people, and that's when I went to school and got into fitness and start. you know, I'd taught dance since I was 13, so I'd always worked with people. Now I could just work with them a different way. So I started doing personal training, and I still have clients. I've been training now for 22 years. I've been in the health and wellness industry. Um, I met the man of my dreams. I had been divorced, and I thought, you know, I had a daughter. I was a single mom. I thought... I'm good. I don't, I don't need a man. I can just, you know, I'm, I'm busy with my career. And boy, let me tell you, that's when I met the man of my dreams. When I just, when I thought I'm going to be single mm -hmm. for the rest of my life, here comes Johnny. And he, um, you know, was a, he was a cop. He just recently retired as a lieutenant commander. And he had a Texas chopper. And I, I kid around. I said, well, you look good in a uniform and you had a Texas chopper. So that's the reason I went out with you. <laughs> but, no, he, he's my rock. And things were good. Um, I had my career. I had three trainers that worked for me. We had a daughter together. And, man, things can change in the blink of an eye. And that's kind of when my whole life changed was when I was coming home from work on my motorcycle. And I was hit by an SUV. Which is really the beginning of the real story. So you're driving, you're, now you're a Harley girl. You said you're riding your Harley and you're mm -hmm. hit uh, by an SUV and basically pretty well destroyed your leg. Yeah, I was, I was T-boned. And you know, as a motorcyclist, you drive defensively. You kind of look around to make sure people mm -hmm. see you. And I saw a guy that was coming, making a left turn. And I thought, well, he sees me. Well, he didn't see me, apparently, and he gunned it out of the driveway because he was trying to beat traffic, and I was T-boned. I The only thing I had time to do was really let off the clutch and try to jump off my bike, and I thought, oh, my God, this is happening. This is happening, and I was thrown about 30 feet, and I was sliding down the asphalt, and I was just curling up in a ball, and all I could think was, oh, please don't let another car hit me because I couldn't tell what I was sliding into. And 
when I finally came to a stop, I looked down at my leg and it was just crumbled into pieces. My foot was only hanging on by the skin and blood was gushing out like one of those horror movies, like with every heartbeat, it was like a geyser coming mm. out. And I held on to my leg and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to train crutch. I'm going to have to train clients on crutches for a while. <laughs> I thought, oh my goodness, the things that go through your head, you know, then I thought, oh, I have my husband's brand new backpack and it's going to be ruined. He's going to be so upset. And then I mm. thought, I just started screaming, you know, call 911. Then I said a few cuss words. And then, you know, paramedics got there quickly. My husband arrived because I was shouting out his number. I was rushed to the hospital. And the emergency room was just filled with cops because, you know, when you're in that brother, when you're, you know, married to a cop in the brotherhood of the police force, everybody like showed up. Um, and I heard my husband crying. I'd never seen my husband cry. And I said, Johnny, you've got to get over here and be strong for me. And he came over. I said, hold my hand. And that's the last thing I remember before I was put in induced coma. And when I woke up from a coma, that's when they told me they were going to have to amputate my leg. Wow. And what? how did that that very moment, share with the listeners what you went through. Well, you know, the doctor said it basically short, it looked like a war wound. He had never seen an accident like this, like short of a war wound. It was completely crushed. It wasn't like I had just a broken leg. It was, the doctor described it to my husband with a cracker. And he broke a cracker. They were in the cafeteria talking and he broke a cracker and he said, this is a break. And he took the cracker and he crumbled it. And he said, this is what your wife has. And so I had a 1% chance of saving my leg. And it took surgery by surgery. It took 34 surgeries in total. Um, 107 days in the hospital the first time. And over 1,000 hours and counting of, of PT but they were able to piece by piece put my leg back together in the last eight years. And it, you know, it has been a journey and through a lot of grit and by God's grace, um, you know, the doctor said after I was diagnosed with a nerve disease called CRPS, he said that, you know, I would be permanently disabled. I would live the rest of my life in a wheelchair and I would, have to wear orthopedic shoes. And I thought, well, I pretty much stopped listening after the word never. But when mm -hmm. he said orthopedic shoes, I was like, what? I'm not going to wear orthopedic shoes. But I managed to, you know, it took me about two years, but I managed to actually run on the beach again with my daughter for the first time. And, you know, my leg is so scarred up that I had another doctor tell me, you know, it's funny, you remember what the doctor's tell you that the things mm -hmm. that you don't want to hear but I let those things motivate me but this one doctor said well you'll never wear shorts again and you know what I wear shorts I you know my leg is deformed and it's scarred and I went through some severe depression and I was in a dark dark spot I hit rock bottom I was broken every way spiritually mentally and physically I was broken I thought, 
I, you know, how is my husband going to love me? Am I going to be able to train clients? Um, you know, what am I going to do? My, my leg, my legs were my livelihood. Running was my life. I ran every day and I had to reinvent myself and I had to overcome a lot and I had to reinvent, um, how I coped with things because, you know, before I used running for, for everything. If I was nervous, I would go out for a run. If I would, you know, if I was sad, I would run. Working out was my go-to. And now I was stuck in a hospital bed. So I really had to come up with some tools to just survive. And, you know, I don't want to just survive anymore. I want to thrive. And my passion is to share with others the hope that was given to me and share with others the tools that I've come up with to not just survive, but thrive in life despite my circumstances and despite living with chronic pain. Mm. Hence your book, True Grit and Grace. And if anybody's listening, of course, you can get that on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. So with that, in this whole area of transforming, your life was transformed what are some of the things now that you can share with the listeners that you have learned that help you to come out of that dark place and be the person that you are now, to be an encouragement to others? Grit is talked about as a critical characteristic for, su uh, for success in life today. Just share with the listeners some of the things and items you have in your book. Yeah, you know that. what? Grit will get you so far. And I used a lot of grit. And, and, you know, in Texas, we have sayings like suck it up and cowgirl up and, you know, get her done. And those were my motto. That was my motto. Just suck it up. Keep going. Keep going. And so those days that I had in track where, you know, my coach didn't care if I was sick and throwing up. She'd be like off the track to throw up. And my dance teacher didn't care if my feet were bleeding. She's like, the show must go on. So, that grit that I learned and that get her done and suck it up, that really got me far, especially when I was in the hospital. But then I'm there and I think, well, my gosh, you know, I've been diagnosed with this nerve disease. It, it's, it's ranked the highest on the pain scale. There's no known cure and it's dubbed the suicide disease. Well, I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to grit my way through every day being in chronic pain and I thought I need some more tools and so I really had to as I laid in the hospital bed and I was so depressed and I could just feel myself spiraling down I thought okay I'm going down fast I got to do something and I had a journal and I was writing in my journal every day and I think I was writing you know to really use my journaling as a coping mechanism and writing down how I felt and getting out those feelings. But at the end, every day, I would write a little bit about, you know, I think it was the, the my southern upbringing of, you know, we always wrote, somebody gives you something, you write them a thank you note. And so I would write down at the bottom of my journal who brought me treats at the hospital or food or flowers. And I wrote down every nurse that came and took care of me that day. And that little thing became a gratitude list. And that being grateful for the little things mm. switched my mindset. And it took my focus off 
me being stuck in that hospital bed, me looking down at my mangled leg, and it just shifted my focus to what I can be grateful for in that moment. And it was my medicine. And um, also, I think what really helped me is being of service. And so even though it took me a year and a half before I could get back to training clients again, I was still of service to people when I was stuck in the hospital bed. Um, you know, I was making phone calls to my clients to make sure that they were continuing their exercises. Mm. I was calling other trainers to set them up to keep them going. Then the nurses, uh, they knew some, they knew I was a little crazy because I asked the doctor to, to install a pull-up bar in my hospital bed because I wanted to keep my upper body strong. I wanted to try to do as much as I could. I wanted to work out. So I had another coworker bring me some dumbbells and I was trying in between surgeries to do some weights for my upper body. And I know that may seem a little crazy, but and it is, but I just wanted to feel some sort mm-hmm. of like normalcy or, or whatever that feeling of what I had before and I wanted to stay strong. And the nurses saw me doing that and so they started asking me exercise advice. And so even though I was stuck in that bed, I was giving them exercise tips. And I think that when you can be of service to someone else, it gives you purpose. And that purpose is what keeps you moving forward and inspires you to keep going and get out of bed. And that's what I am so um, passionate about is sharing my purpose, which is to give others hope and inspiration. And so I think it's so important that we have a purpose. And sometimes people go, well, I don't know what my purpose is. And I ask them, well, what are you passionate about? What do you love doing? Well, find something around that. And that's most more than likely that is really in connection or in alignment with mm-hmm. your purpose. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we've written a book called The Quest for Purpose, and it helps people in that journey and you are correct, is do the work to get clear about what you are passionate about, what your purpose might be, so that you can plug into that energy. Interesting, you know, as a person who works in fitness, is you are also improving your endorphins by working out in the hospital bed. Yes, yeah, you know, um, I think I'm very, I, I think I'm blessed in the fact that I had fitness as a tool, and I knew that um, fitness, when you're fit, when you work out, no matter what, if you can only work out your upper body or whatever you can do, whatever small movement you can do, that you release endorphins. And, you know, I just gave um, an inspirational presentation at uh, an event a couple of weeks ago, and it was a room full of CRPS warriors like me. And so many people you know, have it worse than me. Everybody's pain is different. And there Mm -hmm. were a ton of people in wheelchairs and walkers and crutches. And and I felt grateful to be there. And for me, I feel grateful that I knew that working out would help me. And that's what I want to share with other people who may be in chronic pain. Because when you're in pain, you think, oh, the last thing I want to do is work out. And I feel that way some days, but I know if I can just do something, if I can do, even if it's only 10 to 20 minutes doing something, mm-hmm. I feel better. So I think that is my medicine too, is no matter what, just getting some sort of movement with my body. Absolutely. And of course, all the, all the research supports that. So what else do you teach 
the people who are listening and reading your book around. So we journal, we pay attention to those things, the little things that we can be thankful for, a nurse that treats us well, an individual that brings us a card, somebody that gives us a call. You are keeping your mind active with your clients and still serving them even though you are in your condition. So what are some other things that you have in True Grit and Grace in the book? Well, you know, I think... People. I'm sorry, what were you saying? I'm sorry. I I just said, uh, what else do you have for the listeners that I can take this and apply it to my life today? Um, You know, I think for me, one of the hardest things that I learned was um, just about acceptance. Um, I had to really, I think... You know, I didn't want to accept that I had been diagnosed with a nerve disease. I didn't want to accept that my I was going to have a life with CRPS. And so I was in denial of that, and I tried to ignore it and stuff it down and pretend it wasn't there. And that's basically like the equivalent of a diabetic not admitting that they have been diagnosed with diabetes and not taking mm-hmm. their insulin. And... If we don't accept where we are, we can't come up with the solutions to improve our life. And so for me, it wasn't just um, the acceptance in my life, um, you know, physically, like how what I felt like, but it was also what I looked like. And I'm going to tell you, I, I hated my leg. And Mm. hate was a four-letter word in our family. And I remember I was sitting at the kitchen table with my husband one time, and I looked down, and I was in so much pain. And I was just disgusted with my leg and myself because my leg didn't work properly. It was deformed. It was scarred. And I looked down, and I said, I hate my leg. I wish they would just cut it off. And my husband was like, you, I can't, he goes, I can't believe you just said that. He said, you better be grateful that you even have a leg that you can even go get in that swimming pool right now and you don't have to take off a prosthetic or something. And I said, oh, you're right. So he helped me like snap out of that. But also Mm -hmm. one of my doctors was like, you know, sometimes it's hard. Um, We need somebody to kind of, kind of spur us along and push us into the direction we need to go in. And my doctor, I went for my checkup and, Here my doctor comes in, the one who saved my leg, and he puts my leg in his lap. And he's just looking at my leg and rubbing it, and he's looking at it like it's his masterpiece. And I thought, well, my goodness, if he can look at it that way, well, I can learn to start loving it too. And it was from that day on that I started loving it a little more, and I didn't try to hide my my scars and my imperfections and I admitted where I was, you know, I always say we got to start where we are, use what we can and just, you know, do what we can and use what we have. Because if we don't um, admit to what's going on in our life, how can we come up with the solutions to better it? And just accepting my scars. And when you accept your imperfections, nobody can use them against you. And if they do, you don't Mm -hmm. care. You know, it's like, yep. And and it's, you know, I want to teach my daughters to to truly love themselves, no matter what they look like, or, you know, really just embrace who they are. Mm. So that, mm. that was a big learning lesson for me. So for those of us listening, or those that are listening, is just an acknowledgement about my current condition. 
so that I can move forward, so I can think about it rather than not really embracing it. So you're in denial of it versus embracing the situation. So, okay, well, how can I improve it? How, what can I do with this? Yeah, because, you know, I got myself into trouble with, you know, just d- using pure grit and trying to push through it. There was one day that my back hurt really bad, and I thought, what is going on with my back? And I got to the gym, and I just asked one of the other trainers, I said, can I use some of your Tiger Balm? And I put that on there and wrapped up my back, and I actually thought, wow, well, this is good. My back hurts so bad that my leg doesn't hurt. Well, I can walk without a limp. Well, I was passing a kidney stone and didn't realize it because mm. the RPS is ranked, the pain is ranked higher than a kidney stone. Well, I was passing a kidney stone. It got stuck and caused an infection. And I kept pushing through. I wasn't acknowledging where I was. I wasn't giving myself any self-love. I was like in denial. And I ended up in the hospital. And I went septic, and I was in ICU for three days, and I had two different doctors come in and say, if you would have waited one more day, you would have been dead. And it was the first time in my life I was truly scared. You know, yeah, I was worried after my motorcycle accident, but almost dying is about as rock bottom as you can get, and I was terrified. And it was like, there was a, you know, my body, your body will tell you there's, you know, it's whispering to you, hey, there's something wrong, pay attention, then it'll start yelling. And then when you almost die, it's like, okay, this is a wake up call. You need to start loving, loving yourself enough to pay attention to what's going on and taking care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And that was when really, that's what really shifted and changed my ways because I was always pretty healthy. But you know what? Sucking it up wasn't working for me anymore. I had to truly uh, have self-love. I had to change the way that I was eating. And boy, when I changed the way I started eating, it changed my life. I felt Hang on, hang on. You're a fitness person. You're working out. You're saying that you had to update your eating. You still were maybe not eating as healthy as you'd hoped to. How did you switch your eating? Well, uh, yeah, I was pretty... You know, I always ate pretty healthy being a fitness trainer, but when you are diagnosed with a chronic illness that's called, you know, it's like a lot of inflammation. It's inflammation of the uh, nerve, but it's also, I had a lot of inflammation around my leg. Like my, it looked like my ankle had a bowling ball in it. I mean, it was, it was huge. You know, I would wear two compression socks at a time, and I had to really like give my dietary, my nutritional um, meals a facelift. They were not working for me. So when I say I had to really focus on changing the way I eat, I had to start eating anti-inflammatory. Um, like I cut out process, any processed foods, sugar, um, alcohol, like no more wine. No, I could, you know, having a glass of wine, it would like make me feel better for a little bit because it kind of relaxed my nervous system. And then the next day I w- it would be so inflamed and I would be in so much more pain. It would be like this vicious cycle. So I had to redo, I had to really take a look at what I was eating and add some things in there to support, you know, not just my illness, but my age. I'm getting, I'm getting up there. You know, I'm, I was just reposted on um, 
um, a company that says it's about being older and being fit. And I thought, welcome to middle age. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're embracing that. No denial about that one either. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Just doing my best. Doing your best. Well, we just, we just, Amberly, we just have a few minutes left in the show. What, what can, what else can you share with the listeners for help? You, you, the subtitle of your book is called Turning Tragedy into Triumph. When you think about, there are some individuals who are listening now and I want to go to another level or maybe I'm feeling down. What were some of the other things that you have in your book or your life experiences that I really can turn tragedy, tragedy into triumph? Well, you know... My grandfather used to always say, you've got a shovel in your hand, you can lean on it and pray for a hole, or you can start digging. For me, I prayed, but I had to start digging. I knew that no one could do this for me. Nobody could, you know, it's our responsibility to heal. And we've got great doctors, and we've got a great support system, but ultimately, it is up to us to decide that every day, we're going to wake up, and we're going to turn this tragedy into triumph. And it's not easy. It's not a, okay, I've decided, and now everything's good. It is every single day waking up and deciding that you are going to claim your resilience, because you know what? We all have it inside of us. We all have that light inside of us, but it's up to us to keep those flames burning and finding people who are going to fan our flames because I can't do this alone. I need my support system. I need my tribe of people. Um, And, you know, I think that what the, the greatest gift that I have learned on my book writing journey and my book tour has been the gift of connecting with others. Um, the community of people that I have met through this journey has just, it has strengthened my resilience because mm. I think that we are strong, we can do things, but I think together we are unstoppable. So I think it's really important to find those people that resonate. They, they can say, oh my goodness, me too, that's the way I feel. And, you know, hold on to those people and love those people hard. And when you need to lean in to them and they need to lean into you, that's where the magic happens. Mm. Oh, well, thank you for that. Now, Amber, Amberly, we want to make sure that people can get a hold of you. What, what are the contact, uh, digital contact um, URLs for you to get a hold of you? Oh, I would love for people to reach out to me. You can find me at amberlylago.com. And I'm also on social media. I post inspirational posts every day on Instagram at amberlylagomotivation, Twitter, amberlylago, and you can find me on Facebook at Inspirational Living with Amberly Lago. Well, okay, that's awesome as well. Now, you are going to give us a gift today, I heard. I heard a rumor about that. You heard a rumor? It's yes. true. If they go on, I'll get, sign up and I am giving away a, you know, gratitude. Gratitude has been a huge um, part of my uh, recovery journey. And so I'm giving away a downloadable gratitude journal, which um, has journal prompts and which will help kind of, you know, turn your day into focusing on the positive in your life and also get you to write when you can express yourself, you know, 
put something down. There's something magical about writing um, from pen to paper that is really healing. So I wanted to share that with others. So I would love to connect with others and offer that free gift. Well, thank you very much, Amberly, for that. And I do encourage listeners, I know there are many who don't write anymore, but there is something to be said about writing, about journaling. The research is clear on it to be able to get your thoughts down on paper, and this is different than doing your hand scribe on your iPad. It's so true. And and you know what? People are blown away when I tell them this, but I would say 80% of my book I hand wrote, and then I went back and typed it because it just came out differently when I, hand, when I would hand write. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Now, to wrap up the show, any final comments, Amberly, to encourage the listeners before we go today? I would say, you know, no matter what your circumstances, no matter if you're dealing in, with pain or, or, or a heartache or a lost job, um, we all have it within ourselves to take that step forward and claim our resilience. And so just, you know, keep going one day at a time, one step at a time. It's possible. Well, thank you, Amberly, uh, for being a guest with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I've really been looking forward to getting to speak with you. Well, you're welcome. And listeners, Amberly Lago, do go to her site, find out about her story, 34 surgeries on her leg. There's not many people listening who can claim that, overcame that, and really is now being an inspiration to others. So for yourself, what are you thankful for? Accept your current condition, but then take responsibility to go to the next level. And as we end most shows, if you like what we're doing, please share, pass it on, let other people know, leave a positive comment in whatever platform that you are listening on or to. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.